Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We start with home flipping. So people who will speculate in the real estate market, buy a house, turn around and sell it for a quick buck profit. This has now emerged as another key issue in the federal election campaign here. Have a listen to this now. Here's the federal NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh. Very wealthy investors are using the housing market like a stock market. Okay, Jagmeet Singh on the campaign trail. Let's discuss this now with Peter Julian, uh, NDP candidate running for re-election in the House of Commons. Peter, thanks for coming on. My, my pleasure, Mike. Good to be with you again. Okay, what is the problem here that the NDP are trying to correct here with this proposed new tax on home flipping? How would this work? Well, the Bank of Canada tells us that this has contributed to uh, the, the massive increase we've seen over the last six years under, under Mr. Trudeau. As you know, the housing prices in, in Vancouver have gone up over $400,000. So we, we all know, and I'm knocking on doors and, and seeing firsthand families that are impacted by this, uh, families, uh, young people that will never be able to have uh, a home of their own, uh, families that are really struggling to get by. And so... The fact that speculation and house flipping has contributed to that uh, significant rise is, is something that we, we believe needs to be cracked down on. And Mr. Trudeau has said he will, he will as well, but I, I don't think we can trust Mr. Trudeau. He's broken a lot of promises, and his candidate, as you point out, in Vancouver Granville, uh, has, uh, we, we have found out, has, has flipped houses over 40 times and made millions yeah. of dollars in profits in the last few years. Okay, so, I want to I want to ask you about I want to ask you about that in a second, Peter. So let me let me ask you how how this would work though, the what you guys propose to do. So right now, there's a, a capital gains tax. If you buy a property and you sell it, and it's not your principal residence, you pay a capital gains tax on that, and you're proposing to increase that capital gains tax. Correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. But but there's also the principal residence uh, issue is something that needs to be looked at as well in the case of. Um, the Liberal candidate in Vancouver Granville, it's unclear how many times he used uh, that exemption of principal residence. The, the, the re- reality around a principal residence is you're supposed to be living there, right? You're not right, supposed to just right. declare it and then, and then flip the house and, and make, uh, make the profit. So that's something as well that we, we believe needs to, be, uh, needs to be looked at to ensure that it's, it's used properly, that okay. it is indeed the person's principal residence that they're selling. Okay, Liberal leader Justin Trudeau it also s- making promises on this. He also says that flipping houses like this is a problem, and he says his Liberal government, if re-elected, would do something about it. So they have proposed an anti-flipping tax on residential properties that would require properties to be held for at least 12 months. So if you sell a place, if you buy a place and you sell it in under 12 months, you would get whacked with this tax. So that is their proposal. Now, Peter, though, you did mention this issue with Talib Nur Mohammed, uh, the liberal candidate uh, in Vancouver, Granville. And I know he's going to be on the Simi Sarah show tomorrow. I asked the Liberal Party of Canada to bring a guest here on the show today to talk about this. No one was available. 
Uh, but I want to play this short clip here for you from Global News and then get your thoughts. So here's a report from Global on the Liberal candidate here on home flipping. Have a listen. The Liberals are also promising a home flipping tax, but have come under fire, including from the NDP, as documents show one of their Vancouver candidates has bought and sold 41 properties since 2005, turning $5 million in profit. Yes, you heard that right, 41. Late Tuesday, Talib Nur Mohammed issued a statement acknowledging he had, quote, business activities that would have been impacted by the liberal plan, but he is fully supportive of it. Okay, so basically, I guess he's saying, vote for me, and I will put an end to this kind of stuff that, I, that I've been doing, <laughs> right? Ab- absolutely. And Anjali Apadurai, who's the fabulous NDP candidate in Vancouver Granville, has, has written to Mr. Nur Mohammed asking the following questions that he hasn't answered yet. Has he evicted anyone through these dozens of... Uh, of flipping uh, of homes that he's, that he's done over the years. Uh, how many homes did he keep empty during that period? Because we know that's oh. a problem with affordability. And, and how often has he used the principal residence exemption? Because right. that, that, of course, has tax implications. And you can't declare a principal residence if you're not living in the home. Yes, the rules are a little fluid on that, but that's the principle. So he, he needs to answer those three questions. I hope he will answer those questions from Angela Apajurai to tomorrow on the, on the show. Yeah, well, he's got some explaining to do for sure. But look, any the stuff that he's done here, buying and selling properties and making money on it, it's not illegal, right? Well, the, the, the use of the principal residence exemption, it, that, that is uh, definitely questionable. But mm. it's also that the idea of, of Mr. Trudeau saying he wants to crack down on, on something that, uh, and at the same time, he signed the candidate papers, uh, for, for Mr. Nur Mohammed, who, who obviously has been involved in this frequently over the last two years. So it does okay. uh, question the credibility of Mr. Trudeau on this, uh, as, as in so many other areas, it seems to be a, a hollow promise. Okay, speaking to NDP candidate Peter Julian. Peter, how many houses have you flipped? Zero. Okay, are you sure, man? Are you sure? Yeah, lived in okay. my lived in my principal residence now for, for 20 years, and uh, okay. we like it and we improve it, but, I, I mean, it, it's contributed to... Uh, a massive and really uh, tragic growth in, in housing prices that mean for so many people uh, oh. having having a home is simply not not, not going to be part of their future. Okay, but okay. So let's say the NDP gets their way here, and you were able to bring in this anti-flipping tax, and you increased the capital gains tax from fifty percent to seventy-five percent. That's the promise, right? Fifty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So would that not? actually increase the price of housing because i mean you know wouldn't the wouldn't the seller just ask for a higher higher price to make up for it or no well we we've all, well i mean we're, what we're also doing is uh, increasing dramatically a foreign ownership um the foreign ownership tax so having that at the federal level uh to 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 make the markets uh less uh catastrophic. But the other measures that Jagmeet Singh and the NDP are proposing are also effective to create more housing. Uh, we're going to build 500,000 affordable housing units across the country. We're going to use federal lands in order to yeah. to, to do that. We've uh, proposed a, a wide variety of measures that inc- include uh, in, in increasing the, the first-time home, home, home ownership exemption and taxes and providing yeah. supports to renters as well. These are, these are all things that will make a difference. And we, get, we have the only comprehensive housing plan in this election. 
I guess my point is, though, when you're in a red-hot housing market like we have here and prices just keep going up, up, and up, that I think it's difficult. How are you going to stop people from making a profit if they buy and sell a home? I mean, I'm just not sure you can tax your way out of that. I mean, isn't it just sort of a market reality, a a supply and demand equation? We're we're talking about serial house flipping, uh, as I indicated. The the Bank of Canada has said this has contributed to housing prices, but... But also the, the other thing is money laundering. Uh, that the federal government, both liberals and conservatives, have never taken serious action on, and uh, a lot of this is fueled by uh, by what's called snow washing. It's basically uh, money laundering uh, that is involved in the housing market. There have been some measures that have been put into place. We we need to put other measures in there as well. So if we're if we're reducing foreign ownership, uh, if we're uh, cracking down on money laundering, if we're reducing the incidences of uh, of house flipping, all of those combined will have an impact, but also okay. our positive measures, as I indicated, uh, will help more people uh, get their first home and more people have a home in, in the lower mainland. We, we have to take bold action if we're going to uh, really okay. get a handle on this housing crisis. Peter, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Good to be with you again. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the growing gig economy in Canada now. I'm talking about Uber drivers, Lyft drivers. How about those food delivery apps? Lots of people driving for DoorDash and Skip the Dishes. Are these workers treated fairly? Some people say they're underpaid and exploited. Now, check this out. Federal Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole promising to help gig workers. He says a conservative government would set up an employee savings account for gig workers. Have a listen to this. We believe it's time for gig economy companies to give their workers the protection they need. Our plan will require companies with gig economy workers to make contributions equivalent to CPP and EI premiums into a new portable employee savings account every time they pay their workers. Okay, that's Aaron O'Toole on the federal election campaign trail there. An employee savings account for gig workers like Uber and Lyft drivers. The money that would be deposited in there would grow tax-free. Let's discuss now with my guest, B. Brusque, president of the Canadian Labour Congress. And I'm pleased to welcome her to the show. B. thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Yeah, I really appreciate your time. And, and this is an issue I know that you've been speaking out about in the past. Can you tell me your thoughts on the gig economy, these gig workers, Uber drivers, Lyft drivers? How do you think they're treated? Are they treated fairly in Canada or not? Well, we certainly don't believe that they're being treated fairly in Canada. We believe that all workers deserve to have protections under employment standards, um, minimum wage protections, minimum health and safety protections, you know, have access to employment insurance, have access to CPP and the like. And certainly right now, they do not have that protection. Now, is that because they, under the law, they are regarded as independent contractors, right, and not employees of these companies? Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And unfortunately, you know, places like Uber have the ability to offload their operating costs onto drivers, um, further putting them, you know, behind the eight ball when it comes to actual wages and and benefits and those types of things. Um, Those employees have not had even the basic employment standards like minimum wage or vacation pay that they can count on. And they absolutely have been misclassified as independent contractors. And that means that they're completely excluded from unemployment benefits or any other basic labor standard protections. 
Right. So when it comes to minimum wage, for example, like let's say you're an Uber driver, you're behind the wheel, your Uber app is turned on, you're available for work, but there are no you know, businesses slow, there's nobody calling you to, to get a ride in your car. All that right. time, I guess, I guess that's time that you're, I guess, technically working, I guess, but you're not getting paid for it because you only get paid when you got a passenger in the vehicle. That's correct. Right. Yes. Yeah. So you're technically working and you're available for work and you're sidelined from doing anything else, but you're not actually earning anything. Right. So you think they should be paid for that time? We right? think that they should be treated like workers, not as independent contractors, because they don't have all that much control over their own work time. Okay. What do you think about what Aaron O'Toole is promising here? The federal conservative leader saying, look, we'll, I want to help these workers. I'll bring in these uh, employee savings accounts. So we think that it will actually worsen and not improve the situation because it's going to further exclude these workers from CPPEI um, because it's going to give them an inferior benefit under the guise of doing something for them. They're still not going to be able to have the same types of benefits that all workers should be entitled to. Okay, well, let me play another clip here for you from the conservative leader here, and then I'll get your thoughts on the other side of it here. So here's Aaron O'Toole talking about this. Funds in the employee savings account will grow tax-free and can be withdrawn by the worker when they need it. Gig economy workers shouldn't be left behind when a crisis hits. We will make sure the necessary support is there for Canada's gig economy workers, just as they are for any other Canadian worker. Okay, that's Aaron O'Toole on the campaign trail the other day with his promised employee savings account for gig workers. I, I don't know, B. I mean, on, on the surface of it, I think it might sound appealing to Uber and Lyft drivers. Say, what, really? I'm, they're going to require my, my employer to put money into a savings account and I can, it's extra money for me and it grows tax-free? I mean, it sounds like a, it sounds like a good deal. So it's extra money only if the market is good and you're actually earning money on that money, right, on that investment. So there's no security in that money, similar to what there would be if these employees actually have access to CPP, for example. And that's a problem for us. And that's a problem for drivers. And that it's still a problem in the sense that even if they go down this particular path of these savings programs, there's no other... Uh, protections that these workers have in terms of minimum wage, in terms of vacation pay, in terms of unjust termination, in terms of, you know, all of the things that as workers we all want to rely on, yeah. right? And so it's not really addressing the issue. Okay, but as you heard, as you heard Aaron O'Toole say in the, in the clip there, it says employers like Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, they would be required to contribute to this employ, employee savings account, and it would be the equivalent of like EI and CPP contributions, so is that not the next best thing? I mean, if they're independent contractors and they're ineligible for these other programs under, under the law now, it, it's, doesn't this make them better off? Why not just make them eligible and give them all of the access that every other worker has in Canada to all of the other programs and to all of the other um, constitu uh, statutory laws in terms of employment standards and those types of things? Why, why, how would you, create, how would you, why create a second-class um, kind of group of workers that doesn't okay. benefit them? How would you do that, though? I mean, you'd have to have the, would the, this require an act of the federal government? Would they pass a law and say these gig workers are now employees? They're not independent contractors anymore? Is that what you're so it, proposing? It, it, would, it, would be, it would require legislation to identify yeah. that these workers are, in fact, employees in the various different provinces in which they operate and that they yeah. would fall under the various different provincial um, employment standards laws. How would that impact these businesses? I mean, if Uber and Lyft and DoorDash, were, they were required to pay all these workers vacation benefits and, and uh, time off and uh, minimum wage for times when they're in their vehicle and maybe not picking up passengers or delivering food, wouldn't that, under, wouldn't that just slam their bottom line as a, as a business? 
I think at the end of the day, we have to decide what kinds of jobs we want for workers to be able to access, right? And uh-huh. is this really a job? What do you, what do you mean, is it really can, a job? Is, is this really a job that can sustain you as an individual, that can you know, make sure that you have access to be able to pay your rent and put food on the table and to meet your obligations? And I would argue that right now, under the current um, independent contractor aspect of it, it doesn't give you that opportunity to actually right. fulfill those obligations. And right. so we need to make sure that workers have protections. We have protections enshrined in law, and these workers need to have access to those protections. Right. Speaking to B. Brusque, president of the Canadian Labour Congress, for most people who are working these jobs, though, right? I mean, this is a, it's a side hustle. It's a side, it's a side gig. And a lot of people, you know, if any, when I've taken an Uber car, I, I sometimes ask the driver, do you enjoy driving for Uber? And they typically will say, yes, they like it. I mean, no one's forcing them to take the, take the job. Right. At, at the same time, do they not deserve to be treated in an appropriate way? Do they not deserve to have a minimum yeah. wage standard set for them? Right, but hasn't this been challenged in court? Have they got? Have people gone to court and tried to prove their employees and not contractors and lost in court? Like, there, what's the case been, law? There's been multiple cases in various different jurisdictions on these issues, right? But yeah. from a from a global perspective, we strongly believe that there's a misca- misclassification happening of these workers as independent contractors. They are yeah. clearly not independent. They are all app dependent. They are all dependent on what Uber's, Lyft, all of those different uh, companies. Um, provide in terms of, you know, hours of work, in terms of how they have to log in, in terms of what they what times they must be available right. and those kinds of things. And so from that perspective, they are employees. They do not have independence in that sense. Mm. As president of the Canadian Labour Congress, you, you represent the, the large trade unions in Canada. Is it possible to unionize these workers? Has that ever been attempted? Well, it's only possible if they're not independent contractors, right? Okay, so again, yeah. it goes back to that particular aspect of it. And we believe that all workers should have the right to unionize, to bargain a collective agreement with their employer, and to deal with these issues at a bargaining table. Right. So if you had a government that brought in the legislation you would like to see that you outlined and that declared these workers to be employees, then that would free up the unions to go in there and uh, start a drive to unionize them. Right. Of course, it would give, give an yeah. opportunity for workers to decide that they want to join a union. And again, yeah. it's the employees that make that decision. It's not a union deciding that for them, right? Um, but it gives them that ability to, to unionize and to actually bargain a collective agreement with right. their employer and sit across the table to discuss these issues. Um, but it also makes, makes sure that uh, if they're considered to be employees, that they have access to all of the other legislation that we spoke about earlier. Yeah. Okay, last question for you. It's, this is a fascinating election we're in right now because we see the polls turning around and some opinion polls seem to suggest that the Conservatives are in the lead here now. I mean, who knows? I mean, Aaron O'Toole could end up Prime Minister here. If a Conservative government got in and they brought in this employee savings account for gig workers like they promised, what do you think would be the effect of that? You, you think that would sort of permanently establish these, these workers as, as independent contractors? Is that your fear? That is exactly our fear. What yeah. my concern is, is that it would absolutely enshrine a, a secondary sort of status for workers. So you have the first oh. class of workers that have all the rights and privileges based on employment standards codes and all of those kinds of things, and a second group of workers who do not have those, those rights and that access, and that's a problem. That's okay. a slippery slope. I, okay, I think it's an interesting issue, to say the least. Thank you for coming on to talk about it. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about foreign real estate purchases now. How much has offshore money flowing into British Columbia from outside Canada inflated the price of housing here, putting it beyond the reach of non 
millionaires as the price of lower mainland housing has rocketed through the stratosphere there's been a lot of attention on this issue for many years we've been talking about this for a long time are foreign buyers to blame for distorting the housing market now a 25 year old report from the canada revenue agency sheds new light on this issue this is a report from 1996 from the cra and it was obtained by reporter ian young of the south china morning post it says the majority of homes bought in burnaby and coquitlam at that time were purchased by wealthy immigrants who appears underreported their income did the unchecked flow of offshore capital was started decades ago did that lay the foundation for the housing affordability crisis we see today have a listen to this uh, global news report here from reporter uh, kamil karmali the study now released by the Canada Revenue Agency showed that rich migrants made more than 90% of all luxury home purchases in two municipalities, Coquitlam and Burnaby, while declaring minimal to almost no income. The report shows that of the people who bought homes in Burnaby worth more than $800,000, the vast majority were recent immigrants. The average annual global income they declared was just over $16,000. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam. He's been speaking out on this issue for a long time. Mayor West, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, what is the significance of this report? This is a 25-year-old document that was compiled by the Canada Revenue Agency back in 1996. What does it say to you? Well, I think it's hugely significant. And right off the bat, we all owe a debt of gratitude for uh, Ian Young discovering this and being dogged in his reporting. Uh, The significance is on a number of fronts. First off, it shows us that In 1996, the government was already aware of a phenomenon in Metro Vancouver in particular, where global capital was pouring into our region and outbidding local purchasers out of the housing market. And it created a, a domino effect that reached from Vancouver all the way into the suburbs. It starts at the top with the most expensive homes, and it dominoes right throughout the entire housing market. And and we've seen the results. We're living with it every single day. Is is the significant... Mike, the other significant thing is they've known for 25 years, and they covered it up. Ian Young had to fight for five years on an FOI request to get this. Yeah, I, I just think that this is astounding. You know, this actually makes my blood... Boyle, you talk about government selling out its own citizens and then not even having the backbone or the spine to come out since this report has been released to answer for it. We haven't had a single elected official that I have seen or anyone from government come out with an explanation. Or how about a bloody apology? Mm. It's just, to me, this is the type of thing that should be putting British Columbians onto the streets demanding way better from their government. Okay, when we look at the details of what's been revealed here, it, it says that a lot of these homes were bought up by wealthy immigrants to Canada who underreported their income. And I, I think it's the latter that is of significance here. Because when people immigrate to Canada, and like my parents who are immigrants to the country, 
they're welcomed into Canada. Uh, they built this, largely built this country, and they're allowed to buy a home when they're here. That's not the issue here, right? I mean, this is, is this about hiding income, like hiding money and bringing money, unreported income into Canada? Is that what happened here? That's exactly what happened here, and that yeah. is the problem. You're right. And, and, and by the way, many of the people who suffered the consequences of this going unchecked are uh, immigrants themselves, but working yeah. and middle-class immigrants uh, who have you know, been hit almost more than anyone else with the housing unaffordability that we're seeing in our region. This is about, and I don't care where they come from, it could be any country, but this is about the very uh, globally uh, well, the global wealthy being able to use our region as a safety deposit box, completely unchecked, not reporting their income. I mean, in one case that Ian Young uh, found through his FOI, you have someone who bought a home. Now, remember, this is in, in the 90s. Bought a home in Burnaby for $2.88 million in the wow. 90s. You know what they declared their worldwide income as? $174. So you tell me, <laughs> yeah. wh- where, where's the CRA? I mean, the CRA would go after some poor average person, you know, maybe a, a waiter or a waitress who doesn't properly uh, declare their tips or keep track of their tips or, you know, or you got to keep track of your mileage or whatever it is, you know, they're after you like nobody's business, but they just completely whiff on this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, if you are, if money is flowing into the country that's unreported, I mean, that is what the CRA should have, what should the CRA have done or what should federal authorities have done if they knew about this? Well, investigate, yeah. uh, fine. I mean, that, that's, that's fraud. That's a crime. It, but that's, the government actually did the exact opposite. They came up with new schemes to make it even more enticing. Uh, mm-hmm. Up until a couple of years ago, we still had the Immigrant Investor Program in Canada, you know, which basically rolled out the red carpet for uh, global capital to, to come in. You could buy your way into this country. I mean, there, there are millions of people around the world who you know, are in horrible situations, who are destitute, who would love the opportunity to come to this country and build a life. But instead, our government said, no, citizenship and residency is for sale, and it only goes to the highest bidder. That was the program we had up until a few years ago. Speaking to Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West, this report, interestingly, talks about two communities in in the Lower Mainland. Burnaby and Coquitlam were the subject of this report by the CRA 25 years ago. Uh, I, I find it, you know, one of the other phenomenons here that maybe you could comment on this is like, the domino effect that happens that some experts have described where, okay, you've got some very wealthy individuals, offshore money flowing into the, into the country, and they're buying up very expensive homes like mansions that are very pricey. So how does that affect lower price homes? Can you, can you explain that? Like when you have like at the highest end of the market and, and that, those homes are being bought up with offshore cash. How does that affect the rest of the market that would be the more affordable for everybody else? Well, I think everyone understands the, the, the market, the ends of the market, say the high end and the low end, don't operate in isolation from each other. They're connected. And so when the high end of the market is being bid up uh, by, by foreign capital, 
that absolutely has a spillover effect onto uh, homes that aren't as expensive, but maybe they're the the middle, upper middle end of the market. Because if you're someone who's selling your house and you're looking at, okay, well, you know, this house went for uh, $2 million and, you know, it's a couple of thousand, uh, it's a thousand square feet bigger than mine, but that means mine is worth this. I mean, it, it, it's, it's the, the basic economics of it. The, the reality is they don't operate in isolation. It's the, the market is connected. And so that's how you did see that domino effect where it, it actually ended up kind of like a wave almost happening yeah. throughout the, the entire region, uh, both at the, the higher end of the market and then, as we see now, into the, the, what used to be kind of the lower end of the market in terms of condominiums. All right, welcome back to the show, talking housing affordability with my guest, Brad West, Mayor of Port Coquitlam. Phone lines are open, star 9898 on your cell. Jimmy in Surrey. Hi, Jimmy. Hey, bro. Listen, I got a couple of really good points. First of all, it doesn't matter to me if these people that are buying these million-dollar homes or multi-million dollars, because you know why? They're still spending tons of money here. They're paying provincial taxes. They're buying luxury cars. They're employing landscapers, etc., etc. Number two, they keep talking about affordability the banks are raking in billions and we're, we're being forced to uh, go through a stress test why what do you need a stress test for that's the most prohibitive factor to people not being able to buy homes banks are getting rich and we got a okay. mortgage you know what i think go ahead comment that's okay jimmy thanks for the call brad your thoughts well you're not going to get me to defend the banks and their practices but look at uh, the idea that it's a great thing for a region to just have uh the super wealthy be able to come here and not declare their income because they're going to buy a Lamborghini. Um, sorry, I'm not into that. Okay, what about uh, like the laws have changed though now, right? I mean, we've got like a for- we have foreign buyer taxes. We've had all kinds of reforms to try and cool off this market. Have they been effective? Well, certainly, when the foreign home buyers tax uh, came in, you did see uh, a bit of a, a cooling. Right. I think the one error that is often made in this uh, discussion is that it it's is either all one thing or it's all the other. I've always been of the belief that there's a number of things that we have to do, uh, and and this sort of either or of either okay, well, it's all about just uh, uh, addressing the issue of, uh, of, of the demand or all about the issue of supply. Look, the reality is I think there's an all-of-the-above approach that's required. That's how you're going to start to uh, bring things back down to earth because what we have had is a complete detachment yeah. of the housing market from local economic conditions. Yeah, I mean, this is this has become an election issue, by the way. Uh, uh, Trudeau, for one, has uh, promised a two-year ban on foreign uh, foreign home purchases. Karen in Surrey. Hi, Karen. Hi. First of all, to your previous caller who said that they buy vehicles, they write them off in their numbered companies. Don't kid yourself, buddy. The other thing I want to say is we are penalized as homeowners in Canada with a vacancy tax based on this international purchasing, which is absolutely deplorable. We're being... If you have a cottage, you're being charged because yeah, of this yeah. this behavior. I actually posted that article from Ian Young about a week and a half ago, and I was told that he was a conspiracy theorist. Well, guess what, people? You're wrong. He brought it to you. So he was persevering this. It just goes to show you what is what is being hidden by, by CRA, and it, this is just the tip of the iceberg, in my opinion. Okay, thanks for the call. Brad West, your thoughts? 
Well, look, there's no doubt that a lot of people have been pointing to this going on in our region for a long time. And we're, no, no, not happening. No, you're wrong. Uh, you know, no, there's no evidence. Well, here, here we have the evidence. The government yeah. itself knew in the mid-90s that this mm-hmm. was happening. And by the way, not just, you know, a handful, 90%, think of that, 90% of homes over $800,000 were being purchased uh, through this, uh, this means. Okay, Paul and Lady Smith. Hi, Paul. Yes, good morning, guys. Um, I can't remember when it was, but I distinctly remember when one of Christy Clark's trade junkets, she was went to China promoting right. something called BC Panda Bonds, backed by the BC government. Uh, they, Chinese can only pull so much money out of their country each year, so this enabled them to buy BC Panda Bonds and then come over here and buy real estate. So she was really promoting it. Well, I'll tell you what, um, Brad, if you want to like start apportioning blame, I mean, in 1996, it was a federal liberal government. John Chrétien was the prime minister. It was an NDP provincial government in power in the 90s. You had the conservatives take over federally later. You had the BC liberals take over later in BC. I mean, there's a lot of parties that were in power here during this whole thing. Absolutely. No one has clean hands on this. And and it's part of the problem. All political parties have become addicted to this idea that our country's future, our region's future, you know, is wholly dependent largely on China. Uh, And they put all their eggs in that basket. And and now we see the chickens coming home to roost. I mean, look (laughs) at what is happening with our country and relations with China, taking our citizens, kidnapping them, holding them Mm -hmm. hostage. Uh, the list goes on. Uh, mm. You know, this, the, the groundwork for all of this has been laid over many, many years. Uh, mm. And only now are uh, at least some people waking up to the fact that it's a problem, folks. Let's go to Jim on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Jim. Hello there. Go ahead. Um, I think one of, the, one of the biggest things that's being affected is blind bidding through the real estate market. Yeah. And uh, and that is that is causing inflation beyond belief, and it's predatory. So we need to remove those immediately, and uh, maybe put in a system where if you're a local person and you've never owned a home before, then you you get to you're first in the list, and somebody asks a fair price, whatever they want for the home, and then and then you simply either match the bid, but you're you've never owned a home, so you get priority okay. over anybody who owns other homes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Jim, for the call. We just got a minute left. I'll squeeze in one more call. Blaine on the line in Vancouver. Blaine, you got like 30 seconds here. Okay. Well, uh, first off, in 1971, they brought in MERB legislation and they cut out all apartment buildings from being built from that point on. Uh, Secondly, supply and demand. You know, first off, they brought in the land freeze. The land freeze has cut back a tremendous amount of supply. Then the municipalities have not done any kind of zoning at all to increase the supply for for uh, social housing and different yeah, housing. Yeah. And, and then the governments turn around and 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 basically bring in all sorts of immigrants. I'm not sure we need that many. Thank, thank, thank you, thank you, Blaine. Thank you. And I'll agree with you on the the zoning thing. I think we need to get on top of that and build more stuff for people to buy that's affordable. Brad West, thank you for coming on today. Appreciate it.
Thanks for having me, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Did you see that report that says that eating one hot dog, just one, can take 36 minutes off your life? Really? This was a University of Michigan study, and it went viral, basically reported all around the world. It got a lot of media attention, uh, this report. The university says they ranked uh, thousands of different food items on a health scale and determined that some of these foods will prolong your life and other food choices will actually shorten your life. It was interesting, the day that this story broke, I had actually suggested to my kids at home we'd have hot dogs for dinner. So I actually had uh, just that very day had picked up a package of uh, Schneider's Juicy Jumbos and put those on my barbecue. They they grilled up real well. We we gobbled them down. Now, you know, we're not eating hot dogs every single day. I mean, I don't think anybody does. Everything in moderation, I say. But really, like 36 minutes off your life from one hot dog, like how do they even determine something like that? The other thing that jumped out to a lot of people is what about Joey Chestnut, the undisputed, undefeated hot dog eating champion? He wins that contest every single year at Coney Island. And they've crunched the numbers on, on that. Have a listen to this report. I've got great guests standing by for you to talk about this, and we're going to take some of your phone calls here too. But have a listen to this report here now. from And this mentions the legendary Joey Chestnut here. This is from ABC News. In competition alone, Joey's eaten at least 1,094 hot dogs, adding up to 39,384 minutes off of his life, or a little more than 27 days. Joey poking fun at the study, tweeting, Interesting, I might need to eat more nuts to get time back. The competitive eating champ has a point there. The same study suggesting that eating foods like salted peanuts, baked salmon, and rice with beans are equivalent to adding between 10 and 15 minutes back onto your life. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Eric Mittenthal. Eric is the president of the National Hot Dog and Sausage Council of America, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Eric, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Hey, Eric, I think a lot of people might be surprised there's such a thing as a hot dog and sausage council. What do you guys do over there? Well, our role is to uh, discuss the, the nutrition and the uh, bust myths about hot dogs and sausages. And I think this study is a really good example of some of the mythology that's out there about them that, that is part of the reason why we exist. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, this is a story that just went viral around the world. The, the way it was, the way they packaged it, that one hot dog can take 36 minutes off your life. I mean, it, I guess it's in some ways it's understandable why something like that would get a lot of attention. What did you think about it? Yeah, it certainly is attention grabbing and has made for a lot of headlines. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things that, that the, the, the vast majority of the media has not done is actually read the study. Uh, and, and the study itself was not at all about hot dogs. Uh, the study was about, uh, you know, is there an opportunity to make small changes in your diet to have an impact? And, um, you know, you have to do a certain amount of statistical gymnastics to arrive at uh, individual foods and their exact impact on the amount of time that's going to uh, hurt or help you in your life. And so, um, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting information, but it, I think, you know, people, people don't eat foods in isolation. We eat foods with, as parts of diets and with lots of foods all together. And so, um, you know, making that calculation is something that I, I think deserves a lot of scrutiny. 
Yeah. So would you say that, would you dispute the, the bottom line findings there as it relates to hot dogs in particularly, which, which is your specialty? So you would say that what, eating a hot dog does not take 36 minutes off your life then, bottom line? Well, I think, I think it, you know, when you look at diets as a whole, and if you look at it, certainly the dietary guidelines for Americans uh, where we are, you know, hot dogs and other meat products fit as part of an overall healthy diet. And so it's about dietary patterns as a whole that right. we need to focus on. And so, you know, you should be eating a variety of foods that give you many different nutrients in your diet. Hot dogs offer protein and vitamin B12 and iron and zinc. Uh, there are other foods that offer other really important nutrients uh, in our in our bodies, and so uh, you can have a hot dog. You should eat it with other foods that are nutritious as well, and uh, and, and make sure you're following a healthy dietary pattern and not yeah. and not eating too much of anything. Yeah, right. Like I like I said off the top, it's like everything in moderation, right? We we want to eat a balanced diet. Uh, let me, Eric, let me play a clip here for you from Olivier uh, Joliet, who is a PhD uh, professor at the University of Michigan. This is one of the uh, the authors of this study about the hot dogs. He was in conversation with our own Simi Sarah here. Uh, play this clip, and I'll get your thoughts on the other side here. Have a listen. For example, in a hot dog, how how much processed meat you have? You have about sixty grams. And this uh, study, the GBD, the Global Burden of Disease, give us it's about half a minute lost per gram. So 60 grams, a bit less than a half a minute, that makes 27 minutes lost due to the processed meat. And in addition, you have some sodium inside your uh, hot dog it's, and, and some uh, trans fat, so that's another 10 minutes. Okay, Olivier Joliet there from the University of Michigan. My guest is Eric Mittenthal, president of the National Hot Dog and Sausage Council. So what do you say to that? He's kind of seizing on, well, these are highly processed meats. Well, I think, again, you have a certain amount of statistical gymnastics occurring there with uh, boiling things down to individual minutes. You know, pre uh, prepared meat is what we call it. Uh, is is the same as as, as other meat as well. I mean, it's, it's meat that's uh, cut away from steaks and roasts. It's mixed with uh, spices, and it's cooked and put into a casing for a hot dog. And so there are many different choices available. And so it's, again, it's hard to narrow that down to specifics because there are many options of hot dogs and sausages that are lower in sodium, that are lower in fat. Um, and so, you know, people can choose the different choices that, that suit their dietary needs. Uh, and so yeah. if those are things that, that you are trying to limit, uh, sodium and fat, that's very possible um, by eating hot dogs. You just have to uh, keep track, I mean, to look at what's on the label and determine what is appropriate for you. And we actually have a guide on our website uh, at meatpoultrynutrition.org that lists out hot dogs that uh, fit those different nutrition profiles. So if you're specifically looking for lower sodium or lower fat, uh, that's available and uh, yeah. pretty easy to find. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I mean, there's lots of different types of hot dogs. When I was in the grocery store the other day, I mean, there's a myriad of choices of different types and brands and ingredients. And like you said, low low fat versions, low sodium versions. So, you know, I, I'm imagining that they, for this study, they may have selected the, you know, the typical ballpark Frank variety that's maybe got the most sodium and, and fat in it uh, to do it. But, you know, what about the, we often hear about nitrates, nitrates in hot dogs is that a problem 
Yeah, the vast majority of, of nitrite we get in our diet is are from vegetables, actually. Uh, little known fact, uh, 90% of the nitrite we get out of our diet uh, in, just our, our, in our bodies are from vegetables and our own saliva. Uh, and so what you get from hot dogs is a, a very minimal amount. And, uh, and so and, and nitrite is one of the most thoroughly studied ingredients in the food supply. Uh, it's been studied worldwide over and found that uh, it is not uh, cancer-causing, and so um, you know, it's something that is often brought up for, as concerned, but it, it really has been studied very extensively, um, and, and, and most of it does not come from hot dogs. Okay, Eric, what has been the impact of this report on the hot dog industry and, and the community that you represent as head of the Hot Dog Council? Like, this has got to be pretty brutal. Like, are you worried that people will... That business could fall off, people will stop eating hot dogs, or how do, how do you counteract something like this? No, we see we see things like this from time to time. It's it's uh, it's not unusual uh, that, yeah. that uh, we, we hear we hear these uh, headline grabbing stories uh, that, that sometimes focus on hot dogs. And people love hot dogs, and so yeah. uh, it, it it makes for a good headline. But uh, no, it, it it doesn't have a big impact on the industry. I think what we've seen reaction wise, uh, the most people are mocking it. Uh, mocking the findings because most people know that that you don't eat foods in isolation, and so right. hot dogs are part of an overall diet. And um, you know, if you are concerned about uh, about about your potential effects, you you should enjoy hot dogs with an overall healthy dietary pattern, which is really right. the most important message that you can take away from any nutrition research. It's about the overall dietary pattern and making sure you're getting a variety of nutrients and not overeating uh, as a whole. Our hot dogs, last question for you, Eric. Are hot dog sales, how are sales right now? Are hot dog sales going up, down, um, pretty much plateaued recently? Yes, yeah, sales have been spectacular. Uh, wow. Really, from the beginning of the pandemic, uh, hot dog sales uh, rose about 20% uh, over the last couple of years um, wow. and has really been strong. The summer season is the, the prime hot dog season. And it makes sense. You know, people are looking for foods that are delicious, offer uh, good family-friendly nutrition, uh, are easy to easy to make and prepare. Uh, and so hot dogs right. hit the bill for all of those. Yeah. Uh, and so they have been a staple for people uh, throughout the last couple of years. And uh, I think will remain so as our lives have, have changed and our, and our patterns have changed. Eric, thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it. My pleasure.